Well, this morning, uh, you may have an experience kind of similar to myself. Um, I, uh, I have a Bible that I think I received when I was 12 years old. And up until the time I was probably 32, it was the study Bible that I used. And so anytime I come to a passage of Scripture, I go to that Bible because I can write really, really, really small. And I have crammed every sermon note that I've ever heard from 12 to uh, 30-something in that Bible. So I always go and I look to see what's in the margins. What have I heard? What did I really like? What phrases were used? What was the little outline that they used? And I get to Matthew chapter 24 and there's absolutely nothing. I've never heard a sermon on the chapter of Scripture that we're about to talk about. And, And the reason is, if preachers get to choose, pick and choose, what passage of Scripture they're going to preach on. They're going to preach on things that they like to preach on, and they're never going to preach on anything that's difficult or maybe a little hard to hear. That's Matthew 24. And so I'm willing, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 23, the last part of Matthew 23, I'm willing to bet that if you have a Bible that you keep your notes in, or if you go back and you check your file for sermon outlines or sermon notes that you've got, that you've probably not heard this passage preached before. It's the second part of what I've entitled Jesus' Sad Sermon, and we looked at the very beginning of Matthew 23 last week, the first, oh, uh, 13 verses, uh, first 12 verses. And so this is the conclusion of Jesus' sad sermon. He's been embroiled in controversy with the Jewish religious leaders who did not uh, accept him as the Messiah, and so there was controversy, and they engaged in this questioning and asserting their authority over him. And uh, today, we come to a final and full break with Judaism for Jesus. It's really fairly fascinating, because when you read Matthew's gospel written to a Jewish audience, the Jewish nation is dead and gone in Matthew's book. There is no future for Israel the way that Matthew is read. However, you read Paul, and there seems to be some future hope. And so, For us to interpret the Bible accurately, we have to take uh, the more cut and dry period at the end of the sentence kind of interpretation, along with Paul who kind of leaves a little dot, dot, dot at the end. Uh, Neither one is, uh, they're different perspectives, neither one is complete without the other, but today we listen to Jesus' sermon called the Seven Woes. Now this sounds like a Motown song when you stop to think about it. That is most certainly not the case. This is not, whoa, whoa, baby. This is, woe is me. So this week, as Jesus concludes his sad sermon, it is like a no-holds-barred heavyweight champion of the world beat down on the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus holds nothing in reserve. And yet, as we listen to Jesus' monologue, Within his denunciation of the Jewish religious leaders, there are precious warnings for us. You see, if falsehood came knocking on your front door, none of us would ever open. But it finds ways to creep into our lives. So today we look at the seven woes. And for us to say that this sermon that Jesus preaches is relatively uncharacteristic of Jesus would be an understatement. We've not heard a sermon like this before from Jesus' lips. As a matter of fact, when Jesus began his preaching ministry, back at the beginning of Matthew, specifically Matthew 5 through 7, his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, 
The Sermon on the Mount started with seven blessings. How blessed is the man? How blessed is the man? Oh, what a blessing. And he bookends his ministry with his last words to the nation of Israel being not seven blessings, but instead seven woes. So for our purposes today, we will see those woes grouped in pairs of two, one and two, three and four, five and six, with woe number seven being the capstone, the ultimate denunciation of the Jewish religious leaders. So let's look and see what the scriptures say. As we look at woes one and two, you'll find those in verses 13 and 15, which by the way, the scriptures will be on the the, uh, screen behind us. Um, If you would like your own copy of the Word, there are Bibles available in the pew back. That'll be page uh, 700 if you are on the main floor here. Um, But in Woes 1 and 2, we see very specifically that Jesus is denunciating false teaching that hinders people from coming to Jesus. That is really the mark of false teaching, is it doesn't recognize who Jesus is. So listen to what it says in verse 13. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, you, listen to this word, lock up the kingdom of heaven from people. For you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Think about the imagery here. That a human being has the capacity to lock up the entryway to the kingdom of heaven. One of the things that we joke about here at the church is that once you become a member, you get a set of keys to the campus. How do we know that? Because no matter how often we lock the doors, there's always one door that's unlocked. And we don't know who you are, but we're going to find you. We're going to take your keys away. It's a good thing when it comes to your home or your automobile or to a church campus to make sure that you lock the door because we want to keep anything unfortunate um, or unsavory from happening to our home or to our, our property here at the church. But when he talks about these people in their teaching, locking up the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven doesn't need to be saved from anything. It's strong enough, it can defend itself. And when he's talking about it being locked up, he's talking about not wise stewardship, he's talking about obstruction. He's talking about people who put themselves in the way to prevent you. You know, you've you've come around the corner in the supermarket, and, and there's a basket coming your way, and you're going this way, and you go this way, and they go that way, and you go this way, and you go that way. You feel like you're dancing in the middle of the, the aisle, you know, trying to figure out, all right, which way? You go this way, I'll go that way. They're an obstruction. They're in the way, and by their teaching, they're keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven. Here's the thing that's really crazy. False teachers don't know that they're false teachers. They actually think that they're serving God. And so they think, hey, guys, it's this way, y'all. Here's the fire exit. And the truth is they're actually pointing you in the wrong direction and locking up the door so you can't get out if you want to. That's what Jesus is saying here. They're misguided in their use of Scripture. They have failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So their teaching is false. They're making salvation harder. But he doesn't stop there. Because in verse 15, he expands upon this and says, in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to make one proselyte, one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you yourselves are. I don't suggest using that at the next family gathering. Um, that's, that's really kind of explosive language that he's using here. And what he's saying is that 
even though they're false teachers, they think they're serving God, and they will expend tremendous resource and energy thinking that they're doing good, but actually impeding. Here, he says, they're not only impeding, they're actually making his latter condition worse than it originally was. Because he said, when they get done with your teaching and you're proselytizing, you're evangelizing, traveling over land and sea to get one convert, you actually make them twice the son of hell as you yourself are. Far from doing good, they're actually blocking the narrow path and carting people headfirst onto the path that is wide and leads to destruction. It's certainly true that the disciple usually goes farther than the master. And in this case, their converts out-Pharisee the Pharisees. That's not good news. And so here's the question for you. When it comes to people following the Lord, are you in the way? If that's where they're trying to get to, are you the lady who doesn't know how to steer the buggy in the supermarket? Are you the person who is meandering happily down the road of life, but not doing good to anyone? Are you in the way? Are you leading people astray? And you go, oh, no, 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 I'm not a false teacher. The point here is that if you're not pointing the way actively, then you're not, you're not on the team. You're not doing the right thing. You are leading people astray by your lackadaisical attitude, your indifference, and your laziness. So are you in the way? What does your life say about the way of salvation? Is salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone? Or do you have to do a lot of good things to earn brownie points with God? Are you in church today because you're like, yeah, um, I got to atone for my speeding ticket this week. I was, I was bad, you know, I, I told, told a white lie. So I got to go to church. I got to do something. I'm going to go serve in the nursery. Maybe that'll get me, you know, get me off the next time the cop pulls me over. So he's denunciating false teaching that is blocking up heaven and actually pointing people in the wrong direction. Secondly, in Woes 3 and 4, those are verses 16 through 24, we see Jesus condemns false practices that miss the point. It gets worse, okay? So it's, it's bad enough that they have false teaching, but when you listen to false teaching, what are you going to do? You're going to do false practices, and there's two specifically that he calls out uh, with great clarity here in this passage. He talks about oaths, you know, I swear, and he talks about tithing. So look at verses 16 through 22. He says, Woe to you, blind guides. Now, stop here for just a second. One of the things about their teaching that just uh, really drives Jesus batty is he says three times in this passage, blind, blind, blind. He's not talking about a person who has a personal malady and they're, you know, struggling, finding their way around. You know, they have to kind of feel and listen and be very careful because they don't have sensory, they don't have visual sensory perception, so they're relying upon other senses to kind of make it through life. These are not blind people, they are blind guides. Okay, anybody been to the Grand Canyon? Nobody? All right, there we go. See, y'all are Baptists. You're afraid to raise your hand for anything. Thank you all for volunteering to serve in the nursery next week. Um, <laughs> sorry, you get that later. There is a uh, blind guide expedition company uh, right there at the Grand Canyon. I really don't recommend that you hire their services. I mean, how foolish to have, to have there's nothing culpable about being blind. Being a blind guide? 
is deadly. And that's what Jesus is calling them. He says, woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever takes an oath by the sanctuary, that means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by his oath. Blind fools, what's greater, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctified the gold? Also, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gift that is on it is bound by his oath. Blind people, what's greater, the gift on the altar that sanctifies the gift or the gift? Therefore, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and by everything on it. And the one who takes an oath by the sanctuary takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. Weird passage because we don't take lots of oaths. When we hear the word oath, you know, we think, you know, is it this, John, or is it this, you know, one of those? Scout's honor. Or we think about a swearing-in ceremony where you put your hand on the Bible and you get sworn in as a uh, testifier in court or being sworn in as the President of the United States. We don't take oaths. But in Old Testament times, they would take all kinds of oaths. And so you needed an expert in the law to tell you which oaths were binding and which were not. Now, this may sound kind of strange to us as adults because we don't, we're not typically and habitually in the process of taking oaths. But every single one of you will remember this. Elementary school and when you pinky, pinky promised. Or when you promised something and then you did this and stuck it behind your back. Doesn't count. I don't have to honor it because my fingers were crossed or my eyes were crossed or my feet were crossed or my tongue was crossed, whatever was crossed. And so there, there was a process by which people were making oaths that they had no intention to keep and they would make distinctions because if I swear by the altar, I'm not bound, but if I swear by the gift on the altar, then I'm bound. It's really convoluted because what this is saying is that people's normal everyday speech was not trustworthy enough that you needed to make an oath. And not only did you need to make an oath, but you need to make an oath that bounded you. And the sanctuary didn't bind you, but the gift, the gold, and the sanctuary bounded you. That's ridiculous. You can't have conversation anymore if you can't trust that there's normal truthfulness in everyday conversation. Here's the thing that's really convoluted about this too. They're superficially concerned about religiosity. What's their true motive? It says, you know, you're not, um, you're not bound by the sanctuary, but you are bound by the gold in the sanctuary. You're not bound by the altar, but you are bound by the gift on the altar. They're very concerned about monetary issues. Let's just put it that way. And so in the pretext of religiosity, they're very concerned about finances, and they're not so concerned about faith. As a matter of fact, they're overlooking higher principles to create all these rules of language and go, now you got lawyers that got to figure out, okay, now what kind of oath was that? Was that a binding oath? Was that a non-binding oath? Was it the sanctuary or was it the gold in the sanctuary? Beware of teachers with secret teaching that unlock things in the scriptures that you can't read for yourself. Because Jesus says very clearly in Matthew chapter 5, let your yes be... Yes, and let your no be no. If people want to know what you think, tell them. And you don't need to beat around the bush. You don't need fancy language. You don't need oaths. Just speak the truth all the time. Another thing. I mean, we just prayed this when we talk about our offerings is we're giving back to God what he already owns. I mean, it's really kind of a strange thing. And so they're making oaths by the altar, but that doesn't count. But the gift on the altar, that counts. Sanctuary doesn't count, but the gold in the sanctuary... God owns everything. 
So whatever it is that you swear by, I swear upon my grandmother's grave, he owns that too. I swear upon my honor, he, owes, he owns that too. Everything you could swear by is a creation of God and therefore you are invoking God in your speech. So just be truthful. And he's saying, guys, it's a false practice. It's false teaching and you're finding ways to excuse your sin by saying, oh, I wasn't a binding oath, so I'm okay. But he goes on and he says, it's not only that they're misguided, but they improperly value their own actions. In verses 23 and 24, he goes on and condemns their false practice of tithing. And so in verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth, you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, and yet you gulp down a camel. There is no commandment anywhere in the scriptures that you are to tithe your herbs and your spices. I mean, other than that, man, like ladies, you need to be bringing your spice rack to church. You know, put it in, some of you got big old purses, put them in the purse and you break out the coriander. You know, I don't know. You're going to have to count how many seeds there are because if you want to figure out what a tenth of that is, you're going to have to count all those little bitty seeds. And, you know, don't, don't worry about the ushers. They'll be fine. They'll clean up the mess if you don't quite make it in the plate. God knows your heart. You know, that's, that's what's really important. There's no command in the scripture to tithe your herbs or your spices. Now, some of you have worked in the kitchen with Mr. Sammy. You know that the most insignificant, now they, they add zest and they add flavor, but your herbs and your spices are the cheapest thing you will ever put in your food. Ground beef, meat, that's expensive. And he's saying that they were so obsessed with these things that there were no command about, mint, dill, cumin, that they, they forgot to put the meat in it. They forgot the things that were really significant. They were more obsessed with doing things that God didn't say anything about, that they didn't do the things that God said, yes, you expressly should do this. You should practice justice. You should love mercy. You should walk humbly with your God. And they go, you know what? Ah, we're, we're okay because we're going to go above and beyond. We're going to do the mint, dill, and cumin. And God's like, really? You're not going to live the way I want you to, but you're going to make yourself feel good by doing something that I never told you to do in the first place. Here's a question. Aren't you tempted, if you're honest, to substitute what you want to do for what God wants you to do? I am. It's messed up. It's a false practice. Jesus even says, hey, you know what? All that stuff that you're doing that I didn't tell you to do, you can go ahead and do that. Just don't leave out the really important stuff that matters because when you weigh it on the scale, ground beef is always going to be heavier than mint. Don't neglect the heavier things of the law by doing the lighter things that aren't even in the law. Friends, we are a proud people and we will be proud of things that Jesus never asks us to do and we'll pump ourselves up. And he says, all right, where's the justice, the mercy, and the faith? Oh, you forgot that? Then keep your mint too. I don't need it. Because there's nothing, there's no recipe for me to add it to. It's just a bunch of mint. There's no other stuff to put there. You cannot be more obedient by doing something he never commanded and forsaking to do what he commanded.
clearly did command. And that's what they were doing. And he's kind of funny. He says, you know, you strain out a gnat and then you gulp down a camel. I know some people with big mouths. I don't know how you gulp down a camel. You know, you've heard the story, how do you eat an elephant? What's the answer? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. They're not talking about one bite of the camel. They gulp the whole thing down. Gulp. But yet, they're so fastidious. Oh, there's a gnat in my drink. You know, I'm going to strain that out and get that little bug out so I can enjoy my, my drink. You've seen it happen. The little no they get there. You won't drink the drink anyways after the bug's been in there. Like some of you are like, no, the whole thing's got to go. Some of you braver, more hardy types, you're like, you know, let's get that, let me stick my finger and get them out, and then I can drink them up. And he's saying, that's what they do. They're so concerned about this little gnat. No, they don't care that they're gulping down a camel. It's messed up. And so like the Pharisees, are you more concerned with this really minute trivia stuff? Are you really concerned about the mint, the dill, and the cumin? Or are you more concerned about the things that Jesus says are the things that you have to be involved in? You got to do this. You need to have faith. You don't, you don't get faith by osmosis. You have to have personal, objective faith in Christ to be saved. Church membership doesn't save you. Attending church doesn't save you. And on the day of judgment, there's going to be a lot of people who go, I went to church for 70 years. I'm sorry, what was your name again? It's going to happen. Because people have put their faith in the church and not their faith in Christ. And the church's whole job is to point people to Christ. There are fundamentals that we've got to get down. Are you more concerned about justifying your sin or finding a way to flee from it? Are you only following laws that are convenient or are you practicing costly love? It's interesting that they'll give herbs and spices, but where, is the, where are the lambs and the rams and the bulls and the barley and the grain? And that stuff's expensive. But you know what? I can just chip, 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 chip. I got, a little, I got a little pot outside my kitchen. I can just snip off a couple things, give it to God, and he should be happy with me. Not if you haven't obeyed. Woes 5 and 6 are found in verses 25 through 28. And here, Jesus calls out a false holiness that values external cleanliness more than internal holiness. Listen to verses 25 and 26. <clears throat> He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so the outside of it may also become clean. They think that they're clean because they're respectable on the outside. But on the inside, they're filthy. There is corruption. I know that this has never happened to you. It's never happened to me. But a guy that I work with, um, who I'm not going to mention his name, he's just a lot older than I am, um, <clears throat> and he works with our senior adult ministry, <clears throat> has left his coffee cup over a long weekend. He's out of the office um, Wednesday, and he's not back in till Tuesday. And he's got an awesome science experiment going on in his coffee mug by the time he gets back in. You know, now his coffee mug, it looks nice. I mean, I even think it's a north side, build strong family. You're not going to find a better coffee mug than that. It's clean, it looks good, and uh, man, it, 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 you just know it's got to have good stuff in it. But once you kind of chew up the stuff that's on the top, you know, and actually get to the liquid that's underneath you, some of you are like, oh, that's disgusting. 
That's what Jesus is saying is going on. They're so concerned about respectability and people thinking well of them that they have cleaned the outside of the cup, but inside is curdled coffee. And that English toffee creamer, it ain't English toffee creamer anymore. It's like penicillin. I mean, you're never going to get sick if you take a drink of this stuff. And just as preposterous as that is for us to think about imbibing from that, there are people that this is their mode of religiosity. Got to keep it clean on the outside. Not going to pay attention to what's on the inside. Do you notice what he said is in the inside? He said the cup looks clean, the dish looks clean on the outside. But inside, and he's talking about their motives. Okay, so why do you look clean on the outside? Because when you look at this clean cup that the scribes and the Pharisees have, it's filled with two things very specific. It is filled with greed and it is filled with self-indulgence. What's he talking about? He's talking about their motive. Why do they look clean on the outside? Because they want something from someone. They're greedy. They want your money. They want your respect. They want your love. They want your worship. They're greedy and they're self-indulgent. They want people to think well of themselves because then it makes them feel better about themselves. It's just a very stark warning about your motive for looking the way that you do. So it's a lot easier to get dressed up for church and put a smile on your face and have a wicked heart. But the Bible calls for us to examine what's inside the cup as well. And he goes on and he says in verses 27 through 28, uh, more things about their uh, wickedness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and every kind of impurity. In the same way on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. When pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem for the Passover, there were all kinds of things that would make you ritually impure. One of those is coming into contact with dead bodies. And so uh, about a month before Passover would happen, uh, uh, there was a massive community service project where they would go out and lime the tombs so that they would be bleached white. So that way, when you're walking by, not only have they beautified these uh, memorials, these tombs, but they've also made it clear to pilgrims who are coming to Jerusalem for Passover, hey, I can steer clear because I see that's a tomb right there. And so while it looks, it has a facade of beauty because it's been bleached here just recently, it is something to be avoided because there is rot and decay and all kinds of impurity inside. And in the same way, Jesus uses this illustration to say, you're full of it. Even though the outside may look attractive, and to a naive person they may go, wow, look at this, beautiful architecture, what ornamentation, this is some kind of really significant thing. But no, there's messed up stuff inside. And this is a reminder to us that religion is a great cover-up to spiritual deadness. There are people who come to church to look good. And there are people who come to church because they know they are not good, but that Jesus will make them good. There's a huge difference. And if we would just get this one principle down, that religion can either be a cover-up put on by yourself, or it can be a covering put on you by Christ. It cannot be both. Either Christ has done it, or you are doing it, but only one is effective. In verses 29 through 36, he comes to the very last woe. And in this, Jesus exposes their false pride and pronounces in the most um, 
damning way their judgment. 29 through 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous and you say, if we had lived in the day of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophets' blood. But you, therefore, testify against yourselves that you are indeed sons of those who murdered the prophets. So fill up then the measure of your father's sins. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I am sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill, and some of them you will crucify. And some of them you will flog in your synagogues, and some of them you will hound from town to town. So, all of the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. I assure you, all these things will come on this generation. Here's where the height of the pride and audacity of the Pharisees and scribes come to light. They don't just think that they're better than everybody else. They think that they're better than their fathers. They think that they're better than everybody that lives with them and everybody that came before them. They said, we're better than our fathers. And if we had lived back when they did, we would not have done what they did. But by acknowledging what their fathers did, they're admitting that there is a family lineage. And Jesus says, you will indeed prove your lineage because while you celebrate the prophets in the past, you persecute the prophets in the present and you will do it by killing me and proving that you are the sons of your fathers. They prove their lineage by killing Christ, and they make the most egregious violation of the most preeminent of messengers. And because it is this astoundingly mind-blowing murder of God's highest, most exalted, dearly beloved son messenger, because that violence to that man is so egregious, It's like they have become guilty of every drop of blood of every martyr that has ever existed. In that act, it is the ultimate act of rebellion against God. They make themselves guilty of every violence done to every preacher, prophet, by killing the Christ. And by doing so, Jesus says, You're going to fill up your father's cup of guiltiness. You will fill up the father's sins by murdering God's son in an ultimate act of rebellion, and you will cause it to spill over the sides. And friends, we have to admit that we have a little bit of this spirit too. You know, I've, I've heard Christians say, well, you know, if I lived back in that time, I wouldn't have shouted crucify with all those people because I'm smarter, I'm better, and those people back then were dumb. The Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it is a dangerous thing. If you look back in history and always assume that you'd be the hero, you're much safer assuming that you're part of the guilty party, because the Bible already says you're guilty. But yet they look back and they go, we would not have been like our fathers. But yet, in just a few chapters, they will prove that they are even worse than their fathers. But they are so proud in saying, no, we wouldn't have. And yet, they are standing on the cliff's edge of murdering 
the Son of God. In verses 37 through 39, these are Jesus' very last words to the nation of Israel. This is it. Everything in the rest of Matthew's gospel is to his disciples privately. The upper room, uh, the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane. There is no more conversation with the Jewish nation. Listen to these words in 37 through 39. Wrathful judgment spoken with tears of longing. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. This is Jesus' sad sermon, filled with seven woes, difficult passage of scripture, hard truth. Yet in verses 37 through 39, in closing out his sermon, Jesus closes it by tinging all of the preceding words with an amazing depth of compassion. I have loved you. I have desired to gather you to myself, but I will not make you come if you are unwilling. While he has issued strong words of condemnation and denunciation, you can never call into question the fact of divine love. He loved these people, and he would prove it by even dying for people who did not think that they needed to have sins atoned for. And as we watch this blending of both wrath and love, and as we lament the things that happen in our culture through legislation and the slippery slope of um, standards, values, and virtues, may we never delight in judgment without tears for those who will be affected by it. To be giddy at the destruction of people who do not share our values is to lack the core compassion that Jesus had for people by coming and dying for them, coming to serve people who did not want his service. Yes, God's judgment is one of his perfections, and in glory, we will worship God because of the uh, perfection of his judgment and wrath. We will glory in his sovereign justice for eternity. But now, our assignment is to beg, to plead, and to weep with those who need to repent. When was the last time you wept to God for someone who needed to repent? Have you ever cried out to God for anything beyond what you crave? Oh, God, help me with this test. God, give me the front row parking spot at Publix. God, get rid of these gallstones. God, break through a heart of stone. Change their will. They don't want you. Make them want you. Use me if it costs me the friendship. If I never get invited to the family reunion, let me stand with grace and truth on the gospel. But no, that's too inconvenient. Not that it was convenient for Jesus to hang on the cross and bear the weight of the sins of the world. But perhaps your passion for someone's soul will be the hammer that will chip away that stone. 
maybe they think you don't care enough because you've internalized your care, but you've never wept for someone who will face the awful and terrible judgment of the Lord. By this patient and merciful plea, we see that salvation is possible for whomsoever will. They may come, but they must come now without delay because the Bible says that there is a day that is approaching when he will be acknowledged by all either as conquering and consuming judge or welcome king. So what is the message for us in Jesus' sad sermon? I think quite simply, you look at the word that is repeated the most in the last half of Matthew 23, and it's a warning against hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a very real danger for religious people. Non-religious people, they don't care. They're going to just live however they want. But for religious people, there's the temptation for us to dress things up and make them peachier than they really are, to make things look better than they really are. The point is this. The gospel, things may not be as good as they seem. They very rarely are. But you know what? The gospel is there for where you fall short. And if you didn't fall short, you wouldn't need the gospel. So today, the message of the gospel is not simply something to be believed, it is something to be lived out. So if you profess it, possess it. Live not for yourself, but for the one who died to buy you to be his adopted child. Because whether you recognize it or not, hypocrisy is waiting at the exit of the store. So don't think you can get away from it from going out that door because it's down there too and it's in the parking lot and it's under the seat in your car and it's uh, in the nook and the crane between your nightstand and your bed and it's in your pantry. Hypocrisy is there. But for people who have a clear understanding of the gospel and they know that they stand upon the righteousness of Christ alone because you're not good, then there's no pretense. We allow the Spirit of God to live through us and hypocrisy is not a temptation or a danger for those who walk in the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray and we ask you by your mercy to make us not merely professors of the gospel, but possessors of the gospel. You promise us in your word that you will perfect your work, that you will transform us and renew us Uh, transforms by the renewing of our minds. So Father, we ask today that if Jesus was here preaching to us that the last part of Matthew 23 would not be the passage that he would go to, that we would live with such integrity, that what we live and what we say we believe match, that the charge of hypocrisy would not be charged to our account. But Father, we deceive ourselves. We refuse to acknowledge the truth. And so today, we may be playing games where we think that we are fine on our own. And yet the Bible says, for everyone who does not bow the knee before him, that there will be a terrible and all-consuming judgment that will follow. For those of us that name the name of Christ, there are plenty of things for which we need to repent and say, Father, forgive us and help us to live more rightly for you. By your Spirit, renew us and strengthen us uh, for living for your glory alone. So as we pray and as we sing, Father, give us the gospel.
In Jesus' name, amen.